When did you first learn how to code? How to design or build or even just read computer programs? Maybe it was making that little logo turtle move in computer class. Or figuring out how to copy lines of HTML from a favorite website so you could add it to your own. Maybe it was completing the Hour of Code challenge in Minecraft. Since the 1980s, a ton of emphasis has been put on teaching kids and grown-ups how to code. And no wonder, we're surrounded by code, by devices, systems, and interactions running on or through computer programs. And as computing technologies spread across our lives and environments, knowing how they function, even if it's just at a basic level, is critical for understanding the world we live in. Despite the seeming prevalence of school computer classes and programming apps and learn-to-code initiatives over the last several decades, we still don't all know how to code. And part of that is due to inequitable access. According to a study published in 2021 by nonprofit Code.org, only half of high schools in the U.S. teach computer science. The rates aren't that much better in Canada, where less than half of the provinces and territories teach computer science as part of the elementary or middle school curriculum. Ongoing disparities in who exactly gets to develop computing skills and literacies follow existing lines of systemic oppression, including race, class, and gender, which are also embedded in the very designs of our computing technologies. But access is just part of the story. Even in well-equipped schools with plenty of supports for STEM education, after-school computer clubs and elective computer science classes tend to be dominated by white boys. Getting more girls and more children of color into coding are high priorities for many educators, governments, and some parts of the tech industries, where women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ people are still very much underrepresented and marginalized. The barriers to solving these issues are complicated. They're structural and cultural. They require an inclusive, intersectional, and child-centered approach that resituates coding as an accessible and relevant part of diverse children's everyday lives. Dr. Deborah A. Fields, Associate Research Professor in the Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences Department at Utah State University, is doing just that. Her research focuses on developing innovative workshops and cutting-edge pedagogical approaches for teaching coding and other STEM subjects to children, teens, and educators. Her work explores the relationships between learning, identity, and motivation. And her theories about these relationships and how to foster them in positive ways have had a game-changing impact on the fields of education, technology, and media studies. She's also a key part of a world-renowned research team led by Dr. Yasmin Kafai that's designed a number of excellent online tools promoting coding and creativity to kids across K-12 and beyond, including the critically acclaimed visual programming language, Scratch. Dr. Fields' work appears in numerous publications, including the book Connected Play, Tweens in a Virtual World, co-authored with Dr. Kafai, published by the MIT Press in 2013, and the article Electronic Textiles as Disruptive Designs, Supporting and Challenging Maker Activities in Schools, co-authored with Drs. Kafai and Cyril, and published in the Harvard Educational Review in 2014. Full disclosure, I've had the enormous privilege of collaborating with Dr. Fields myself on two major research projects, the Kids DIY Media Partnership and the Kids Online White Paper for the Joan Gans Cooney Center at the Sesame Workshop. 
Her most recent collaboration with Dr. Kafai, Luis Morales Navarro, Justice Walker, and others focuses on the impact of bugs, mistakes, and other errors on kids' learning and experience of computer science. Dr. Fields and her colleagues are flipping the script about bugs, turning them into opportunities for kids to build community, develop a growth mindset, and start seeing themselves as coders. The findings from this project have already been published in several journals and conference proceedings, most notably in an article entitled Debugging by Design, a constructionist approach to high school students crafting and coding of electronic textiles as failure artifacts, published in 2021 in the British Journal of Educational Technology. I'm Sarah Grimes, director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Deborah Fields about the Debugging by Design project and how to make coding more creative and fun for young people who don't yet see themselves as coders. So let's just jump right in. What is constructionism? Constructionism is an educational philosophy that was developed by Seymour Papert in the 1980s. And the basic idea is that we learn best when we're making things. It's like the knowledge structures in our head fit together when we're making something in real life, whether that's a sandcastle or a Lego structure or putting together a kitchen appliance or maybe even just writing that paper that you had to do. We usually remember these things more and they actually help us learn. I'm sure most people can sympathize with that idea that you remember the things that you've created. But not only that, we learn when these things can be public. So when I can see what you're making and when you can see what I'm making, we can have a conversation about it or get ideas from each other. So when we are in community and the stuff we're making is shareable and visible and it leads to conversations and it might lead to changes in what we make. And why is it so important for kids to learn how to program or build circuit boards? There are a number of reasons to argue for kids to learn to program. I mean, some of them are jobs. Um, It'll give them workforce opportunities and all that. I tend to be along the lines of the literacy side. Just like it's important for us to read and write because we're surrounded by texts and the world operates around texts and images and those sorts of things. Computation is now one of those things that surrounds us. It doesn't have to mean you're always on your computer, right? Computation is in the stoplights, it's in those doors that open automatically, it's in the purchases that we make, it's in the data that's being collected on us all the time. And it's really empowering for everyone, um, and especially kids, to be able to take part in at least a little bit of how that computation exists. So if you can learn to program, it equips people in one of the basic literacies of modern life. The other part is it's important for people to know that that is something that's possible for them. Just like reading and writing, programming is accessible to everyone. It hasn't always been made accessible in the way it's been taught, but it absolutely is possible for anyone to learn. One of my favorite things ever was teaching an 80-year-old woman how to program a birthday card for her adult son, who was himself a professional programmer, but she'd never actually programmed. So everyone can learn young or old. One of your recent articles, published last year in the British Journal of Educational Technology, co-authored with Kafai, Morales Navarro, and Walker, introduces a new idea and pedagogical tool which you call debugging by design. 
What is debugging by design? So let me back up a little bit to answer what debugging by design is. First of all, if you've ever made anything at all, you know that it probably did not go right the first time. And so you had to do what we call debug it. The bugs would be the things that go wrong, the things that are little errors, unintentional or, or just normal. So by debugging things, we remove the bugs. Um, it's a formal term in computer programming to debug a computer program to make it work better. So. Pretty much nothing goes well the first time we do it, and we all have to bug as part of the process of creating something. However, one of the interesting things that we can do is give people practice in actually debugging. And so often what happens in schools is the teachers or the instructors uh, create bugs for people to solve. I mean, think about all the math problems you ever solved as a kid. Um, those were designed by someone and you got to solve them. So think about uh, creating a computer program or a craft project or an electronic thing. Bugs are gonna happen and, and as an instructor, we could design bugs that we think will help people learn by solving them. So what we wanted to do with debugging by design was not give that power of designing bugs to instructors, but give it to kids so that they could learn by creating bugs. And we did it in this social way where we had kids create buggy projects for each other to solve. So it was part of this unit that we had on uh, what we call electronic textiles, which are these really fun projects where we sew electronics on fabric with conductive thread. And then we, we sew a computer on there and then we can make these lights turn on and we can make it sensitive to touch or light or those sorts of things. So these interactive fabric computer objects, all those words together usually blow my mind. And you know, we have bugs as part of them and the kids solve them. But the bugs that you have are not usually very fun to solve because you don't know what the answers are. So instead, we put kids in charge of bugs. So they were no longer susceptible to these bugs that would come up that they couldn't predict. Instead, we said, go make some bugs and then give it to your other friends in class. We've mixed and matched partners. And, um, and then you have an hour to solve them. You mentioned just now that bugs aren't usually fun to solve. And that makes sense since they're normally experienced or encountered as mistakes, as failures. What does the Debugging by Design project tell us about the role of failure in kids' learning? Well, failure is a part of all of our learning, but we don't usually like to talk about it. Um, sometimes people are of the idea that, well, we should protect people from failure because we don't want them to get too discouraged. And yet, studies have found that when we fail or think about it not as a terminal failure but like a temporary failure so when you run into a wall on something and you can't say you run into a project you can't finish it or one of the areas this came up originally was in math education and you're you, you encounter a problem that you don't know how to solve and you don't finish it okay so let's consider that kind of a failure they found that when kids did that when they were given a hard, difficult, unstructured problem that they were not fully capable of solving, they actually did better in their next problem set compared to kids that were just really given all of the help they needed and all of the scaffolds and all of the supports. So we know that failure can be productive for learning. And there's a whole genre of work called productive failure that's a part of this. 
So when we get into bugging by design, we, we kind of played with this idea, except we turned it on its head because we wanted kids to design those buggy projects for other people to solve, instead of the instructors designing really hard bugs for the kids to solve. Um, so we use debugging by design uh, in the middle of a unit where kids are already creating things. They have enough knowledge and frankly enough experience with bugs happening in their projects that they could use those for others. And one of the funnest things that happened is that a lot of the bugs kids designed were ones that came up for them when they were making their work. So it's like, ah, oh, this thing happened when I was making my own design. I am going to design this thing for someone else to solve. Ha! And uh, that's quite, quite almost therapeutic, <laughs> I think, to give someone else a problem um, that you've encountered and now you suffer through this problem, but it also becomes a learning experience for both the designers and the recipients of the problems. So in terms of thinking about failure in kids learning, it's just part of the learning process and we need to find ways to make sure that, that kids understand it, right? That it's, you don't always solve every problem perfectly the first time. Um, and that it's totally normal to run across things that are too difficult for you. But that actually the process of coming across those problems that are too difficult for where you are right now, that will actually help you in the next step of your learning. That leads really well into my next question about a concept discussed in the article, which you and your co-authors call socially meaningful failure artifacts. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about this term, what it refers to, and why it's important? I think what we mean by socially meaningful failure artifacts is making failure social. So making it obvious to other people and then making it meaningful, where this becomes part of a valued learning process. So some of the best teachers that I've worked with um, actually celebrate the problems that come up during class. So they'll actually call out, hey, guess what so-and-so did? This is my favorite failure of the day because it becomes a learning moment for the entire class. Think about it. When you make something, you run into problems and maybe, hopefully, you eventually solve those problems. And those problems are probably the things you remember the most and they become some of your most visible, your most memorable learning moments. But think about it if you could learn not only from the problems that you encountered, but the problems that I encountered or that other people in the room encounter too. Then we just multiply the learning opportunities because all of these problems, these mini failures become socially meaningful for us and become ways that, oh, maybe I can avoid the problem that you made um, since I know about it, right? You encountered it. You came up with a way to solve it. Maybe I can avoid it. Or maybe if I'm already running into it, you have a way to help me solve it. This is happening on forums around the world, everywhere. We're just trying to help it happen in classrooms. And the only way you can make it happen is if you make it something that's shareable. Like that it's okay to share that you ran into a mistake, even a silly mistake, right? Because we all do that. In this article, and actually in a lot of your work over the years, you argue that there's a meaningful connection between learning and creativity. What is the relationship between creativity and learning? And why is creativity such a crucial part of kids' engagement with STEM? Let me approach creativity less from what we might call big C creativity, like those big people like Einstein was tremendously creative, right? Because that can be really intimidating, like the creativity on a societal wow, introducing something that we've just never thought of before. 
Let me think about it as a little C creativity. Those little moments of creativity that we all have. It could be a little problem that you encounter and you think of a way to solve it. Little C creativity happens when we're connecting different worlds that we participate in. So I'm at home, I'm at work, I have different family members, you know, I got my mom's side, my dad's side, my friends, um, all of these different worlds we participate in. Creativity is sort of where they can intersect and lead to something new. And then I want to focus on the part about creating something and creating something that's personally meaningful. It's probably easiest if I just give an example. When we were first studying the projects that kids made, these crazy sewable computational objects we called e-textiles, um, one thing we noticed is that when kids were working on the parts where they really cared what it looked like, that were personal to them, we might call it the aesthetics of the thing they were making, and I don't mean aesthetics with, you know, a really big, heavy meaning. I just mean like, I wanted this to look like that college sweatshirt that I want to go to, or I was making a cool belt that has lights on it. Um, when they did that, they created problems for themselves that were unique. And by solving those problems, they created their own sort of mini specialization of learning. And it was so much better like their learning was so much more thorough, their learning was so much deeper in those moments where they were making this thing that they really cared about, um, that it took them way farther than if they had just looked at this, oh, here's this model for how to create this circuitry. Ta-da, go ahead and do that, right? When they were instead having to alter these ideas or customize the knowledge about coding and circuitry and crafting to make their particular object, we found that was when they learned the most. So that actually led us to train teachers in this really interesting idea that we like to call aesthetics first. It's basically like we make kids draw what they want to make before we tell them anything about the technicalities of how to make it. So they have to draw their idea for this textile object and where are the lights going to be and what is it going to do. And of course, because they have no domain knowledge about how to make this, they come up with ideas that are way beyond their skill level, even at the end of the unit. But as part of having that, they have this idea in their head. And once they have ownership of that idea, then we can introduce them to some of the skills to begin to accomplish that. And their original idea will change. It changes in ways that make it more approachable and they learn a lot and they still keep ownership of it versus Here's a simple project that everyone can make. Go ahead and repeat what I have made. That does not lead to tons of learning. Yeah, obviously, you'll learn something by doing what that person made, but if you're starting to adapt those ideas to something that's personal to you, that helps. Another important theme in your work, and one that's already come up quite a bit in your responses so far today, is the key role that peers can play in constructionist learning experiences. What roles did peers play in the debugging by design study? And how did this compare to some of the other workshops you've led with children and teens? Let me talk about this in two ways. So one, everyone was with one or two partners in designing their buggy project. So there were peers as co-designers. And then of course, these projects were intended for someone else to solve. 
So I'd say the way it connects to some of the other work that we've done before is this sort of co-designing the kids together working on things. I will say that one of the really fun things that we noticed in this particular context of designing buggy projects is that the kids were really encouraging to each other. So one of the funny things that happened is while they're designing bugs intentionally, they of course accidentally designed unintentional bugs. So this usually puts a wrench in things and they have to figure it out. And we saw kids just encouraging people to persevere, coming up with ideas, saying, ah, you got this, you know, just, just keep on trying or suggesting ideas. And also, you know, they had a lot of fun coming up with the ideas together. There is something really beautiful about creating a buggy project for someone else. The whole mischievousness that came about. So this starts to relate to the second part of the, the answer in terms of the audience, right? There was a recipient for these buggy projects, namely other kids in class. And um, it is so much fun to design bugs for someone else to solve. Like I said, it's a little cathartic, a little therapeutic. And the mischievousness was something we've never seen before in any of the workshops we've done for close to a decade now. A couple things happened that were really interesting about this sort of audience, the peers as audience for these buggy projects. One of them was the mischievousness and that, oh, ho, 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 you know, I am going to design this crazy bug or this bug that I encountered and I'm gonna give it to this other, this group of kids to solve. And so there was that fun. And these kids delighted in trying to write tricky code that would be intentionally deceptional, which was just not something we ever thought of before we saw the kids actually do that. So there's a bit of that. And that was really fun. And it got them, frankly, to think about code in new ways. Um, that they hadn't before in the project. And the other part is they actually were somewhat merciful towards their friends. I've, I've emphasized the mischievous side, but we also told the students um, that they only had one class period, so a little less than an hour to solve the projects. So we encouraged them to think about, all right, so how many bugs is too much? You know, because you don't want people to be frustrated to the point of giving up. Uh, you want some frustration, but, but not too much. So they actually really started to think about their projects as a whole, these buggy projects. You know, how many bugs is too much? Is this gonna be too hard? Is this going to require them to completely re-sew this project? So they actually, you know, cut out some bugs that they had intended, refined them a little. Um, it was really interesting to see the way that the audience or the recipients of these buggy projects shaped their design. And then of course they all got to compare at the end, like which bugs did you solve? Which couldn't you find? Some kids found all of them. Some were too difficult. Some were beyond their, their knowledge. And, uh, and everyone had a lot of fun with it. And there's also a little bit of victory. You know, the designer's like, haha, you didn't discover this bug or wow, you, you, you fixed this one that I accidentally put in that I didn't realize that I put in. Um, those sorts of things happened. One of the things that really struck me when I first read the article was how so many of the kids initially reported feeling frustrated with this part of the workshop and with the whole debugging process. But several weeks later, frustration was replaced by feelings of comfort and confidence. Can you please say a little more about the role or impact of frustration in this project and more generally in kids' learning? So first, in relation to this particular project, you know, 
When they were solving the buggy projects that they had just exchanged, that was the last part of this little mini unit. And so when we had them write about their feelings immediately afterwards, they were very, very aware that they had not solved all of the bugs or they were frustrated by the number of mistakes because this is a project with a lot of mistakes all at once. And yet, a few weeks later, they really only had positive things to say about this. And some of the kids were like, can we please have more? Can we do this more often, like maybe earlier? Because all of a sudden they had so much expertise with solving bugs. They had a thought process to apply, like, okay, there's a bug. Let me think about what I know about it, where it might be taking place so that I can focus some of the sort of isolating the bug, figuring out where it is, and then how to solve it. They also had potential solutions. And it had just been incredibly visible to everyone that everyone in the class makes mistakes and needs help solving them. So they felt way more comfortable asking for help. They also felt more comfortable giving help. So that was a lot of really empowering stuff happening. And um, I think as they got into the next project, right, away from debugging the buggy project and into their next design, it really became apparent to them how much more capable they were feeling and how much more expertise they had in this domain of debugging. In general, for the impact of frustration, you know, this is something we talk about. There's this famous theory um, called growth mindset that talks about persevering through frustration. And it gets back to um, this idea of productive failure, that frustration is not a bad thing. When things are too easy for us, we honestly don't learn a ton from them. I think the key is how big that frustration is and what comes before and after it. And then maybe how socially visible is it? So if you're frustrated with something, it's not something's not working for you and you feel isolated, you may think you're the only one who has these sorts of problems and that might feed back into ideas you have about how capable you are. But if you know that other people are frustrated, that this is a common part of learning to become an expert in a domain, well, gee, I'm just part of this group of people that's becoming experts. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So as instructors, we want to design environments that allow kids, even encourage them to feel frustration. Make it part of what it means to be in this class is, hey, we're all gonna get frustrated every now and then. We're all going to fail now and then. We're all gonna run into mistakes that maybe we are not currently capable of solving. And that is a normal process of learning. At the same time, maybe we don't want to make some things too frustrating. So for instance, I try to make it so that the computer software works so that the kids are not spending an hour trying to work out technical bugs that honestly I could save them that time. So we want to maybe select the kinds of frustration that we allow. Maybe we jump in at certain times to support the students, but it's always better to, for instance, instead of solving the problem for them, to ask them questions, like find out where they are at and give them just that little bit of help that they need to, to make the next step. So again, frustration is part of the process, frustration as social, and then as an instructor, designing a learning environment for the kinds of frustration that you hope kids will experience and then kind of figure out when it's starting to get to be a little bit too much and then maybe intervening in those things or preventing certain kind of things like technical issues or distractions from coming up.
Another great finding from this study that I want to circle back to is how mischievousness and fun emerged as these productive, enjoyable aspects of the experience for the kids. How did this finding fit within the broader goals of the project and within your work more generally? That's funny. You really tapped into a key theme of my research, which values mischievousness. I love it when kids are playing with the, the rules, finding sneaky ways around things. Um, I know that you know about this from some of my work in virtual worlds and cheats and games. Mischievousness can be such a fun part of learning. It's an area where we as learners, and I'll speak of this, you know, whether kids are learners or the adults are learners, we're a little bit more in control. Like if you have the ability to be mischievous about something, you're in a little bit of power in this situation, and that's a good feeling. And, you know, it's fun to sort of break the rules. A lot of what we know and thrive in in society is sort of knowing where the rules are and knowing just where you can break them in that really beautiful way, whether it's creating a piece of music or coming up with a new solution in programming or mischievous in the way that you're participating in a video game play um, or just mischievousness and finding a sneaky way around the rules that doesn't break them in ways that harm others, but sort of breaks them in a way that you learn something. That is definitely a theme of my research and fun. I mean, come on, learning is fun. If learning were not fun, we would never grow up. We would never learn new things. And I'm not talking just about learning in school. I'm talking about learning to grow that plant or learning to style your hair in a certain way or learning to make this project or making something for a family member for a holiday or a birthday gift or something like that. Like learning is fun, learning is addictive when you do it right. And uh, we should be celebrating those moments. In your research and in your teaching practice, you strive to quote, break down stereotypes regarding who can create with digital media and computing, end quote. What are those stereotypes and how do your projects work to disrupt them? So I want to talk about two types of stereotypes. One is who can create with digital media and computing. And the second is what you can create with digital media and computing. So let's talk about the who first, because that's way more prominent in the news. Okay, We have common stereotypes about who can make with computing and code. Think about some of the famous movies that have come out recently, highlighting, for instance, black women who are the origins of the computational revolution in the early days, coders, right? And women were some of the first software coders and some of the most rigorous ones. And yet, those are not part of our public idea of software engineers or computer programmers. Those images are starting to change. You can see that in popular media and stuff. But a lot of people have these stereotypes about who can create what with computing and how sophisticated they can be. So you really wanna break those down because as I said earlier, I think anyone can code. Um, maybe not everyone can code at the most highest levels. That takes, you know, 10,000s of hours of expertise to develop and maybe we don't all pursue that. But it's certainly within everyone's capability. So how do we help people see that they're capable of it. So that's one thing, and we, we do try to break down those stereotypes. Another thing is what you can create. So for instance, myself as an example, before I was given this task of, here's this syllable computer, go make cool projects for kids to make with them. 
I had no idea that computers could be sewn or that lights could be sewn. I didn't know that conductive thread existed. So the idea of computer fashion objects, maybe a computational quilt or a jacket that lights up or just everyday sorts of things, birthday cards with a light on them, that helps break down what you can do with computing. You know, you can, you can code music, you can code art, you, coding is important for so many social justice efforts around the world. So we need to break down ideas that computing is just for clever puzzles and whatever, solving this puzzle when there's a certain way to do it. That is part of what the domain of computing is. And those puzzles and those solutions might be helpful for certain problems. So they might be part of the skill set you develop. But what you can do with computing is tremendous. And it can be off the screen, you know? When we are engaging kids in making these physical things, that don't involve a screen. I mean, maybe you code on the screen, but it uploads to this little device that we've sewn in on fabric. It blows their minds because they've never thought, quite often they've never thought, that computing goes off the screen. Wait, wait, I can do computing stuff and it just travels with me? And the code that I wrote is there? And I can make it interactive and adaptive based on different things. Um, interactions with squeezing, touching, and the light, measuring temperature, those sorts of things. That's really powerful. I think one other stereotype that occurs is that kids often think that learning code, computation, or even just learning in general has to be isolated and it's all in your head. And that is so not true. And one of the things we see when kids are writing reflections afterwards, we actually have them create, again, create, a portfolio reflecting on some of the challenges they faced and the things that they've learned is they start to name what computing is in ways that counter those stereotypes. So they start saying, well, it's super collaborative. Like I got help from my friend or I gave help from a friend or I got this idea from someone else or my teacher came and helped me. It doesn't change the ownership and the object that they've made. But they're defining computing as creative instead of this isolated thing. They're defining computing as non-geeky, as artistic and aesthetic as meaningful for society. So there's all these aspects of breaking down stereotypes in terms of who, what, and how you're making it. I'm going to shift gears a bit and ask you the question I'm asking all my guests this season. The United Nations recently adopted a new general comment confirming and outlining how children's rights apply in the digital environment. Do you think this will have any impact on the types of opportunities kids have to learn and engage in creative making and coding or on any of the other relationships that you examine in your work? Well, I hope so. <laughs> so that's a really awkward answer, but let me try to explore that a little bit. One, I think it's an amazing document and children's rights. And a part of that is the responsibilities on digital environments have been ignored uh, for decades. There have been some really amazing progressive uh, designers of sites who have focused on kids that have just created so much openness and such great communities and who have helped train kids about their rights and responsibilities with things like copyright and expression and being a part of a community where you might be hiding behind an anonymous username or something like that, that have really laid some groundwork so I think, you know, this general comment is fantastic. And for the sites that are already doing this, maybe it helps them, you know, defend and 
promote their work a little bit more like, oh, hey, this supports the work that we're doing. This is important. Gosh, in the US, there's so much protective work about children, like so much nervousness about designing things for children. Like in some ways we've had designers tell us that so much money has to go to lawyers, that the environment itself is not always the best design for children, which is really ironic. So I hope that this helps maybe free up some of those costs and maybe it won't. Um, I certainly would like the word to get out. And here's my favorite part about this whole process. At the very least, we have over a thousand children who helped create the interpretive document explaining this UN general comment by children for children. So that means from the perspective of constructionism and learning by making, we have a thousand children around the world who are very equipped to understand and teach about children's rights in digital environments. In fact, I wish that every child around the world could be part of an effort to come together and make a document in their languages um, and with their personal expression that explains the rights of children for each other. That would be really, really powerful. If we can empower children to understand their rights and know them, then that's one step towards helping those rights be achieved because then they can speak up and children's voices can be powerful when we allow places for them to be heard. A big thanks to Professor Fields for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about Dr. Fields' work, the publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. This was the final episode of Season 2, but we'll be back in the fall of 2022 for Season 3, which will focus on game-changing research on the politics of digital technology and life online. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with support from the KMDI. Audio mix and sound design by Mika Sestar. Music by Nicholas Manolo. Theme song by Tycom Park. Our logo was designed by JP King. And the artwork for today's episode was created by Kenji Toyuka. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening. <laughs>